on bracelets. It quickly found its way to t-shirts, hats, coffee mugs, and every other kind of novelty item. And then, like all fads, it went out of style. And like so many other fads, it didn't get a nice, peaceful send-off. If you've ever seen an old photo of yourself and cringed at what you were wearing or what your hair looked like, that is how lots of people feel about the WWJD moment in Christian history. Uh, The slogan has been criticized for missing the mark. Some saw it leading to the burden of self-righteousness, that I have to do what Jesus did in order to be saved. Others saw it leading to a kind of, maybe it was the wrong question. Shouldn't we be more worried about what Jesus said or what Jesus has already done? And so with all these negative feelings and emotions and thoughts piling on, people stopped wearing the gear and asking the question. But in recent times, even in recent days and weeks, It seems that more people are or should be asking the question, what would Jesus do about all our civil unrest? What would he do about the protests? What would Jesus do about the riots? What would he do about systemic injustice, about guns? What would he do about our upcoming election? Would Jesus wear a mask? Like so many fads, it seems this one might make a comeback. And perhaps we would all be better off as Christians if it never went out of style again. WWJD doesn't have to be about saving ourselves or making ourselves equal with God. It is a helpful question in a troubled time. So what would Jesus do? If you would, open your Bibles to John 6. And while you're turning there, I'll go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is to gather together, um, whether it's here in person, especially here in person, but also the wonderful uh, privilege it is that we can have cameras set up and computers going and sending video and sound across the Internet to people uh, hopefully gathered now in their homes to participate in worship together as a body of believers. Um, Thank you for the encouragement it is to, to me, God, that I, I can stand up here and look out at so many faces who have come because they love you, have come because they are looking to you for comfort, for strength, for wisdom, uh, for hope. And uh, as a pastor, as just a Christian, a fellow brother in Christ, the, the joy that I get, the encouragement, the strength that I can find in this body of people, um, I pray that we would all be encouraged by that this morning. Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to your word, that we would find you and find your son there. And as we look to Jesus, um, that it would just change us, God, that our hearts would be moved as we study and examine what we find there. Um, Lord, lastly, I just pray for uh, this morning for our attention. God, uh, it's different. Things are different. Things have been different. As one with two little kids, I know how different things have been. Um, God, I pray that you would help us focus, help us all to focus, help me especially to focus on your word and what you would have us to say this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So, looking at John 6 this morning, and again, I would encourage you, if you can, please open up to John 6. We're not going to be reading it verse by verse, but I am going to be pointing things out, working through there, and it will be helpful for you to know that I'm not making this stuff up. So, John 6. 
Uh, the first thing, right, is have you ever bought a gift for somebody? Uh, well, let me correct that. Have you ever bought a gift for yourself by buying it for someone else? Right. Have you ever done that thing where you really want something? So you get it for someone else. I can say this. I can ask this question because I know I've definitely done this. Hannah might think I've done it to her. I don't think I have. But I'm thinking of one specific time as a little boy buying a computer game for my older brother. It was uh, called Backyard Soccer, and I really wanted this computer game. And so I came up with the brilliant idea. My brother's birthday was conveniently right then, and I bought it for him. Uh, he liked the game. He definitely liked it. He probably liked it a lot, but I, I didn't buy that game for him. I bought it for myself. I, I co-opted my brother's birthday for my own game. In John 6... We see the crowds trying to co-opt Jesus for their own gain. And one thing we can be sure of is, what would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't be co-opted. In John 6, people are following Jesus, according to verse 2, because they've seen him do wonderful things. They've seen him heal the sick. They were amazed by his power. And so they follow Jesus to the foot of a mountain, and there they are once again blown away by his power as he takes a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish and multiplies them to feed thousands. But they are, of course, they're, they're blown away. They are amazed because of this miracle that Jesus has done. But in the flow of John's gospel, as you're reading along, this episode is, is meant to communicate to us that Jesus is God. Only God is able to feed thousands in the wilderness. If you think back to the Exodus and to Moses and manna from heaven, that connection is distinctly made here in John 6. But the crowds, they fail to see this amazing truth unfolding in front of them. Yes, if you look at verse 14, the crowd recognizes in Jesus the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And yes, in verse 15, this crowd, they move, they are eager to make Jesus their king. But what does Jesus do? He bails. He withdraws from them. Why? Doesn't Jesus want to be king? Aren't the crowds right to recognize his power? Aren't they right to see in him the fulfillment of prophecy? Doesn't Jesus want enthusiastic followers? Well, yes. So what's the problem? The problem is these people were trying to co-opt Jesus. They didn't care whether or not Jesus was God. They didn't care that he was offering them eternal life. What were these people worried about? In verse 26, they just wanted him to give them bread. They weren't looking to follow Jesus wherever he would go. They were looking for Jesus to lead their cause, to do what was convenient for them. And that's made abundantly clear when at the end of chapter 6... Many of these so-called disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. So we, we co-opt Christ and we use his name, his power, his teaching, his reputation for ourselves, for our own gain. And God isn't in the business of giving his glory to another. So what would Jesus do if he were walking our streets today? I can say for certain he would not be co-opted. He would serve his father's agenda And nothing else. He isn't a soldier to be enlisted in our culture wars. He's the commander in chief. He sets the agenda. And he won't be made king of my kingdom or your kingdom or any of our kingdoms because he's already the king of his own much better kingdom. So we need to guard ourselves in this moment of history we're in against 
mobilizing Jesus for our own causes when it's convenient for us, like the crowds tried to do in John 6. We also need to be careful about labeling Jesus. So as we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? We have to remember that so many times in the Gospels, Jesus refuses to be put into a box. So, again, what would he do in light of our controversies? Well, now for this, we're going to flip to Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. So, uh, as you're turning there, I have been dealing with a shortage. There, there are hardly, there are not many things like first world problems more frustrating than running out of storage on your phone. And I'm, I've been having this problem lately, and I'm trying to delete things. I, I'm trying to make more room. My phone, I can't get emails because... I'm not even sure. And what I've discovered is that your phone, maybe many of you knew this, but your phone will download information, like little information packets to help it run more fat, more quickly. So, for instance, Facebook, uh, if I go to Facebook, I don't have the app. Uh, it may, it kind of helps me from going there all the time. But if I go to Facebook.com, it has downloaded little information packets so that anytime I go there in the future, it doesn't have to go find all that stuff. It's already on my phone and it speeds the process up, right? Our brains do a similar thing, right? It is, in, it is human nature for our brains to put information into packets. Like in my brain, I have a packet for cats and dogs. And if I, I see a cat, I can pretty quickly pull out that information that my brain's already got there and understand that I'm allergic to that cat, that I probably don't really like that cat, that that cat would probably kill me if it got the chance. Right? All of these things, and it might not be 100% accurate, but that information is pretty reliable. And this, these categories we have, are they're natural to us, and they're usually incredibly useful. But Jesus defies easy categorization. Right? In the Gospels, like I've said, we, we see this happen over and over again. In Matthew 22, specifically, we see it several times. Jesus' enemies are trying to manipulate him into a corner. So starting in 15, Jesus is asked about whether or not it is lawful, whether or not it's good to pay taxes to Caesar. If Jesus says no, he runs the risk of the wrath of Rome. If he says yes, he runs the risk of the wrath of the Jews. So will he answer as a, a rebel or a loyalist? Is his allegiance to Israel or Rome? Well, Jesus' answer transcends these ready-at-hand labels. In verse 21, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is a hard answer, and the implications of this answer are not entirely clear 2,000 years later. What if Caesar and God are totally at opposites? Or... The question is, what, what does Caesar really own anyways? Isn't everything God's? And there are lots of takes on Jesus' teaching here. But that's not my point this morning. My point this morning from this verse is what we can know for certain. And what we can know for certain is that Jesus didn't let his answer put him in a corner. He didn't let these people trap him and put him into a box, corner him into a position that he didn't want to take. And why should he? Why should Jesus fit our labels? Why should he squeeze himself into our feeble information packets that we have? He's the second person of the Trinity. His very existence defies our understanding because he is fully God and fully man in one person. How do we even begin to wrap our minds around that? But when the Pharisees, they asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, they could only imagine two answers. 
Jesus' loyalty was either with Rome or Jerusalem. So when we seek wisdom by asking how Jesus might act, we have to realize the very real possibility that the categories we bring to the table are insufficient. We have to realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the divine word who was in the beginning with God and through whom all things were made, that Jesus might surprise us with an answer we hadn't considered. God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So in the midst of such a divided culture and time, we need to be slow to identify Jesus with a side. We need to be slow to identify with Jesus with our side, with our categories that we've come up with, because he will not be put into a corner. So what would Jesus do? Right At this point, I've just said two things he wouldn't do. And these are two important things because it's important for us as Christians to not march falsely in Jesus' name, but to make sure that we truly are following him. So what would Jesus do? Well, at this point, if you would turn to 1 John 3, verse 8, it's what Ben read earlier this morning to our kids down here. In 1 John, the Apostle John plainly tells us the reason Christ came. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We've been asking, what would Jesus do? What, what would Jesus do if he were here? Well, he would come and destroy the works of the devil. That is why he came. Which raises the question, well, how does he destroy the works of the devil? Colossians two thirteen through 15 says this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would carry his cross to Calvary to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus triumphs over the devil by nailing the record of our sins to the cross in his own body. The devil is a slanderer and accuser, always bringing accusations against us before God. But by the blood of Christ, the truth and power of those accusations are put to rest. Christ was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have been cleansed by his blood and by his wounds we are healed. So, so what? Great. You've likely heard that message, hopefully, hundreds of times. Christ died for your sins. You are forgiven. Jesus has conquered sin and death and Satan. Praise, praise God. But how does that help me? How does that help you know what I should do? How does this move us any closer to solutions here and now? Well, the answer comes when we better understand exactly what the devil has been working on. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus says that the devil is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, the devil's nature is completely contrary to God. God is truth and God is life. The devil is deceit and death. 
And two of the greatest examples of this can be found at the beginning of everything in Genesis. In Genesis 3, if we jump back, we will see that the devil has been attacking the relationship between God and mankind from the beginning. We will find, if we jump back all the way in time, we've gone back to the first century, we found Jesus there, but from there we're flying back to the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden. And there, that sinister serpent is speaking lies driving a wedge between God and his creatures. In Genesis 3.1, the serpent sows doubt in Eve's mind by questioning God's word. He says, did God, did God really say that? Then in verse 5, he questions God's goodness. He tells Eve that God is holding out on her. He questions God's power. God, can God really provide for you? Is he really strong enough to give you what you need if he won't give you this fruit? Now, you probably know the rest of the story. The devil has successfully distorted the truth. Eve takes a bite. She hands the fruit to Adam. Adam takes a bite. Sin enters into the world. Paradise is lost. Death is introduced. And sin comes with a curse. It comes with a cost. And and the peace we had with God at the beginning is lost. It's this peace with God that is restored to us in Christ. God no longer views us as sinners. Righteous sons and daughters. But there's another side of this peace that is almost always overlooked. And it's very easy to overlook. And it's how we now see God. I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, know someone who has walked away from Christ or is very close because they no longer believe in God. They no longer believe that God is great and that he's good. They wonder how an all-loving, all-powerful God could stand by as so much evil happens in the world. So maybe God is loving and he wants to help, but he's not strong enough to do anything. Or maybe God is strong enough to help, but he, he actually just doesn't care about our suffering. But when you look at the Bible, it becomes very clear that the God we find there, the God that the Bible proclaims, the God that Jesus claims to be, is all-loving and all-powerful. So when we look into our world and, and things call either of those into question, it is no wonder that doubt comes into play. And so we deny God because we doubt his love or we doubt his power. We don't trust that he is both great, great in his power, and good in his love. In the Garden of Eden, Eve failed to trust in the goodness and greatness of God. And so, as we know, she denied God and went her own way. But the cross, it makes us right with God through the forgiveness of sins. Absolutely, 100%. Don't hear me saying anything other than that. But it also, the cross is also the airtight evidence that God is both great enough to save you and he is good enough to want to. His strength is so great that he endured the suffering of the cross and triumphed there over death. Not even death could hold him down. And his love is so good that he would go to such great lengths to save a wretch like me. His love triumphed through the most terrible evil ever committed. On the cross... We have peace with God because our sins are forgiven. But we also learn with full assurance, again, that God is truly great and he is truly good. And when we look to the cross, the lies of the devil begin to sound awfully foolish. And it changes how we live. We can find motivation in the cross to do what God says. It becomes our delight to do God's work when we see his unstoppable power and his overflowing love. 
It is the work of the devil to cast doubt in our minds that God is great in his power and good in his love. But Christ on the cross shines like a blazing sun to remove any shadow of doubt that we might have. The cross destroys the devil's lie that God is anything less than perfect in love and power. And when this domino falls, the next domino should quickly follow. Peace with God leads to peace with others. See, the lie isn't, or the lie is that God is not for me. And if God isn't for me, then I have to take care of myself. And if I have to take care of myself, if I have to focus on myself, there is nothing I can do for anyone else. I can't care for other people. And so this lie about God that we believe, it doesn't just stay between me and God. It, it slowly or maybe quickly pollutes every single thing that I do. So sin is like dropping poison into a well. If all of your water comes from that well, there is not anything that will not be harmed by putting poison in it. When your relationship with God is poisoned, there isn't anything left unaffected. God is the source of life. You cannot poison the source of life and expect life to go on as normal. Now, it's no coincidence that following the fall in Genesis 3, the very next story in Genesis 4 is about Cain and Abel. Disconnected from God, the unfaithful heart of Cain quickly devolves into raging murder of his own brother. Sin has far-reaching effects. If you look or, or call back to mind John eight forty four, the devil is a liar, yes. But he's also been a murderer from the beginning. The devil is turning us against one another. But if God truly loves me, if he truly loves you, if God is truly powerful and he's promised to provide for you, he's promised, he's already provided for you, then I am free, you are free, we are finally free to love other people. I don't have to worry about my own survival. I don't have to worry about saving myself. I'm totally and 100% known and loved and secure in Christ. By showing us God's love and strength, the cross empowers us to love one another. This is what we find looking at 1 John 3, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. See, love for God is connected with love for neighbor. It is love for God that creates, uh, enables us, empowers us to truly love other people. The cross, it, it destroys the work of the devil that pits us against each other, fighting for survival and significance. So... What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would die on a cross as a demonstration of the love of God that saves sinners and destroys the works of the devil. Now, it's, it's possible that this doesn't sound like a solution to you. It's possible that when you hear the gospel, that the good news that God or Christ saves sinners, uh, 
it, it, you can't see how it fixes the world's ills. But the world was sick with the same disease when Christ really did walk the earth. We don't need more than the gospel. We need more of the gospel. We need more of it than we've previously believed. Because overturning the work of the devil is more. It's not less. It is definitely not less. But it is more than securing our souls for eternity. Yes, in Christ, our our souls are eternally secure. And I get up here in front of you today and say, that is what my hope is built on. That my soul is secure with Christ. But because of that... I can be confident that God will be at work in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. Every kind of sin and injustice and cruelty and lack of love is being dismantled by Christ in light of the cross. And while none of these things will be perfectly completed before Christ's return, none of this is ultimately ultimately up to me or you or even us as a church, we ought to find great joy in taking part in this wonderful work of God. And one of these wonderful works, as we consider earlier in the sermon, was multiplying bread. Jesus didn't neglect the actual physical hunger of people. And neither should we. We can't neglect bread while we point to the bread of life. We can't ignore injustice while we point to the heavenly king who establishes justice. But bread only lasts for a moment. And human justice is sadly easily toppled. And so while we can't ignore bread and justice, we must also be concerned with bread and with justice that lasts. And eternal justice, eternal bread, eternal life can only be found with our crucified Lord. So what should we do? We shouldn't co-opt Christ and we shouldn't try to put him into a corner, into a position that's convenient for us. We should instead point to his cross as the epicenter of hope and renewal. The place where sins are forgiven and hearts are brought to life in God. We look to the cross and we see what God has done. His love and power are sure forever. And we as Christians have the privilege of serving Christ to bring his love into the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross, God. As we even now are standing underneath a cross or sitting underneath a cross here in this sanctuary, uh, that it is by the cross we come to know you. It is by the cross that we uh, are, are forgiven, are cleansed. And it's because of the certainty of the cross and the certainty of the resurrection that we can be certain of our standing with you, that we can know total security in your all-loving, all-powerful nature. God, I pray that each one of us, myself, most of all, would, would be, begin to wrestle with that and, and let that sink into us, that we are completely and fully forgiven and fully known and fully loved and fully secure in Christ. And out of that, we don't have to see others as enemies or as threats, but out of that love that you have shown us, we can overflowingly pour love into other people. But I pray that we as a church would be known for our love of you and our love for other people. Thank you for so many people in in this church that that is already so true of. Um, Lord, I I just pray that um, 
as we leave this place, we would um, honor you in all that we do. Uh, and again, I just I thank you for this time we've had together. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.